Tour is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace and it's the perfect app for travel. I was recently traveling overseas for seven weeks in multiple cities. Turo made it so easy to find the type of car that I needed in each city, including various things like a car seat, snow tires, and a lot of space. I live in SF Austin and Sydney, and I use their cars wherever I am and when I'm traveling. I don't have a car in SF and Austin, and we just use Turo. The booking process is so convenient, and the hosts are awesome. Go to Turo.com and download the app today. Sendar is the OG startup accounting firm in Australia, catering for all stages of your business's life. If you're busy running your startup, you don't have time to do your own books and forecast. Instead, fully outsource your finance function, giving you time and resources back to focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. For a free one-hour consultation about your business's growth plans and finance needs, head to sendar.com. That's S-C-E-N-D-A-R.com. Okay, three, two, one. Hey, I'm Cheryl. I'm Maxine. This is First Check, part of Day One, the network dedicated to founders, operators, and investors. If you want to be a better early stage investor, this is the show for you. So TLDR, if you don't want to suck at investing, listen up. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, so let's get started. Maxine, I'm excited. We've got Rain Ong on our podcast today. I think that he has the most startup t-shirts out of any angel investor. Oh, like hands down. And also like the best vintage of startup t-shirts as well. It's like amazing selection over maybe the entirety of the Australian startup ecosystem. I reckon it's kind of like a vinyl collection. You know, you can like set vintages based on the startup t-shirts he has. But I, yeah, same. I am so jazzed to have him with us. I actually, so Rain was the first person in the Australian startup ecosystem I connected with. A friend of mine connected me with him back in 2018 when I was coming back from the US. And in my prep for meeting him, had a look on Twitter and couldn't work out whether he was a joke or not. So much, it was just like so much shit canning of the venture ecosystem. And at the time in the Bay Area, like no one was a reverent of the startup ecosystem. Everyone was like, it's the best thing. And so I came into the meeting just being like, I don't know how to start this meeting. I don't know whether this is a joke or not. And either it's like the most effective joke and he has become the best investor in Australia as a result of the best executed joke, or it's just a really effective con of the Australian ecosystem. But really, it's been amazing to watch just how many deals you've done, Rain, um, how many incredible startups you've been a part of. And so really, really excited to, to dive in here and learn more about how you think about investing, how you think about you know building value in these companies, how you find these companies, how you just like nail depth and breadth. I'm really excited to have Rain with us today. Yeah. Rain was also one of the first people that I called when I decided to start angel investing. I was like, I've written a couple of checks, but I don't really know what I'm doing. Rain, tell me everything there is to know. Go. And he was probably one of the most helpful people. And I think the other thing that I find so impressive about Rain is is that all roads lead to him. He's like this like all seeing eye of Sauron and that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're right like that initial kind of like is he a joke is he not I he just has fun with it and every time we get to chat it is hilarious although I like he could not be real like is is he really rain or his is his name actually Ryan <laughs> the biggest mystery of the Australian startup ecosystem so so excited to have you on rain slash Ryan 
depending on which student you want to assume today. We are humbled to have you as one of the first guests with us on First Check. And one thing that I have always wondered, given the depth and breadth of investing that you've done, and we'll come to that later, and, but I really want to know what was the first investment decision you ever made? In any asset. I can't actually remember, to be honest. <laughs> it, could be, it could be one of the early... ASX puns, you know, on a, on a listed stock that I have no idea about. Of course it was. I'm pretty sure I lost all my money. That's why the brain kind of protect me from remembering. Maybe it's a self-protecting mechanism. But, you know, honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And I think you forgot to mention that I also invested in both of you. So True. it's really hard for me to say no to this invitation. <laughs> I, I, I've never done any podcast recording before. So this may be the one and only. One and only, yes. It's a collector's item. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Like you invest in both of us and it's so amazing to get to partner with you in that way. I mean, to honor what Cheryl mentioned in the little intro, like all roads in the Australian ecosystem lead to you. I genuinely think that you get to see every single deal that gets done in the Australian ecosystem from pre-seed to like maybe Series B. Super impressive. I think you you have fallen victim to our marketing, you know, campaigns. <laughs> it may be true, maybe, you know, in the early days, like 2015 to 2018, but I don't think anyone can see everything now. It's just too vibrant, which is great. What about your first startup investment, Rain? What was that? I actually look at my spreadsheets. My first money out of the trust account was actually the Blackbird calls. Really? Yeah. And in my first year, I've done eight investments. That was 2014. One has shut down. One, I haven't heard from them for a while. And then we have Blackbird and Instacluster in there. Wow. And Instacluster went amazingly well. Yeah, they were acquired last year for 500 mil USD. Love that. It was a pretty good outcome. Yeah, that's a great Everyone outcome. involved, yep. Yeah, that's super cool. And that's very interesting that the first kind of call out of your trust account was Blackbird Fund 1. Like if I think about the development of the ecosystem, I, that's almost like ground zero. Oh, for sure. Right? That might be like the first deal done. Yeah, I think that I was at the right place you know, right time meeting the right people, pretty much. So the the story was, I was activated, you know, to explore angel investing, and I have no idea how to do it. So I went to this innovation bay event called Angel Education, Angel Ed. Funnily enough, I sat next to Nikki, hmm. and he told me about Startmate and Blackbird. And back then, he was raising the first fund, and I will be the last five people that went into the fund right before the final close. So when I paid the call, I paid uh, three calls in one go. I have to do the catch. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really, that's incredible. Turns out to be the best investment of my whole life, I reckon. Did you know that or have a sense of it at the time? Well, to be honest, I have no idea how it works. Uh, there's also a funny story. So um, when Nikki introduced me to Rick, I actually brought my resume to the office and pitched Rick who I am and asked him to take my money. And Rick actually said, this is not how, how it works, right? And we have to pitch you, so you give us your money. So <laughs> that was how green... Uh, yeah, I, I would attribute this to pure luck. I would love to see what was on your resume at that time. Yeah. Yeah, software engineer for nine years. That, that's, <laughs> that's my resume. <laughs> that was your resume. <laughs> it fit on an A5 piece of paper. 
<laughs> oh, it was it was literally two pages. I mean, kudos to you for fleshing out nine years of software engineering into two pages. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I one of my observations and, and from our conversations in the past is that you have done an amazing job of cultivating a network that filters you the best deals and gives you early look at the best deals. I mean, I know you humbly said before you think we're victims of your marketing material and like maybe you're the marketing material I'm a victim of here, but I do, my observation is I have seen your name or Archangel's name on like incredible deals and most funds in the ecosystem. So we'd love to know from you, how did you think about from those early days, like meeting the right people, fostering the right relationships so that your network compounds for you and sources deals for you? Yeah, I think the zero to one journey was actually not easy, right? I think for not just for investing, but for businesses in general. The lucky thing for me is I started around 2014. And as you know, back then it was pretty barren. Yeah, There was not a lot of stuff happening, not a lot of funds uh, actively investing. So it's actually, it was actually possible to go and say hi to everyone and, and build a relationship, right? So what, what I did back then was um, I was introduced to this group called Sydney Angels. And that was a very good group for my discovery and learning process because they have you know workshops about due diligence, how to run a deal, how to run a syndicate, you know, how, how to do due diligence and whatnot. You know, you can just sit there and watch how other people ask questions and, and run a deal and, and just learn from it. So that was really beneficial for me. And if you ever invest in a company and you look at the documentation, you see three other investors who, whom you have never met, you know, it's quite easy to reach out to them and, hey, we're in this deal together. I'd love to catch up over a coffee. And if you do that for a couple of years, I, I reckon you would have met every active investor in town. But then what I really quickly noticed was most of the investors are older than me and most of them have finance or legal background. So I have nine years of software engineering <laughs> experience. So that was also, I think, the point of time where I figure out what do I bring to the table and how do I make sure you know, people loop me into whichever amazing deal they're doing. So I, I actually started doing you know, technical due diligence, interviewing the CTO, sourcing the CTO, and also landscape mapping of potential competitor, similar software. And, you know, as you can imagine, the finance and legal people were like, oh, this is amazing, right? We should ask Rain to come and have a look at this. So that was kind of like my entry ticket to a lot of the deals conversation as a relatively new and unknown person. But, you know, it's going to be a little bit harder because there are way more players now. And I think there's still a chance that if you build a specialization into a certain vertical and, and you kind of dominate, you, you can still use the same principle to get into deals that way. Absolutely. I think one thing I think a lot about is like compounding as a concept, the value of compounding in many different categories, mm -hmm. but especially in investing and compounding in relation to networks is as valuable for early stage investors as it is, you know, as it applies to kind of compounding value of the assets we're investing in. And so the the way that you kind of consistently did the same behavior of kind of following up and meeting the right people and then compounding on those relationships by working out what the unique value proposition is to those groups and then delivering value and then meeting more companies, investing in more companies, 
you know, reaching out to more investors and that cycle continues for you, I think is super interesting. And it's clearly been really effective for you. I think you're right, Maxine, in, in the sense that like that might have been really easy for Rain to do in that particular instance back then. But it's not that you can't do that now. Like if you find your niche and continue to create the same actions in the same space, it will create compounding effects as you grow into the ecosystem. And if you're just starting out, just because the ecosystem is much, much larger than it was back when Range started, doesn't mean that you can't still create that compounding effect. 100%. Yeah. I mean, Rain definitely had a head start by starting at the dawn of time. An advantage. Yeah. <laughs> That I do, like I think that that is still an insight and still a strategy that works. And I think all you have to do is think about the kind of more developed ecosystems like the US, like the UK, like Israel, mm. and see that there are still new investors entering into those ecosystems, kind of getting cut through um, and carving out really effective niches in those uh, those ecosystems as the ecosystem continues to grow. Yeah, but I think yeah, it's super cool to hear that's kind of your your ground zero and how you kind of continue to execute. Yeah, hundred percent. On the other side, though, like speaking of like finding niches, one of the things that I love about what you do, Rain, is that you invest like literally across the board in terms of industries. So I'd really love to hear from you, like how do you evaluate and look at like a company like Morse Micro, a microchip company, in the same day as like an alternative meat company like Val? Like how are you investing? across those industries at the same time it's so incredible i don't think anyone can be an expert in every field so our approach has always been who are really good in certain fields and you know do we trust them enough i think in the case of moss micro that was highly dependable on a guy named uh, neil west west t and that that was the guy that that returned the textbook on wi-fi chip pretty much and I got the chance to work with the Moss Micro team through the Startmate program. So I got to know them relatively well. And when they pitched Neil, I think Neil not only invested in the company, but he also joined the team. So that was a pretty strong signal you know, for me to, to do something there. And uh, with Val, you know, I, I would say it was mainly Alfred Lowe, right? And my friend, uh, he's running Harvest B now. And... He has been working with George at um, Cicada Innovation on, on commercializing deep tech and devices. So when Alfred invested, you know, there, there are quite a few individuals in the local ecosystem that I'll just follow blindly and, and Alfred will be one of, one of those uh, people. But you know, like back, back to the point on how do you evaluate? I think most of the people, they spend too much time on diligence on what if I lose my money? Whereas uh, we'll focus a lot more on what if this work. And I think that's crucial if you are investing um, in the in the very early stage. The way we minimize risk is that you know, we write a very small check at, at those stages, early stages. And then we try to learn and work with the team over time before we write a medium-sized check and hopefully eventually a large-sized check. And I think the concept behind that is you lose more and you win big, but you get that information over time. Super clever. It makes me think of the AngelList team and Maiden Lane. This is a strategy that they have used really, really effectively, that kind of informational check. So you write that first check with an opportunity to learn and then kind of double down on the folks that are winning. How do you think about that double down decision? 
because there's also some interesting data on the in the other direction that it can be really hard to make an effective decision on the double down decision and you don't get swayed by the sunk cost fallacy right where there's a company that's kind of like almost there or they were pretty good at executing but not amazing you know how do you make that decision on what you double down on and make sure you don't fall into that that trap i i think it depends on the sample size you know so we look at the cohort base like say if i do 10 deals a year and next year if you tell me five of them looks really good and justify a double down follow-on investment i don't think that is true like in my personal experience there may be five kind of bridging opportunity but there will usually only be one that kind of blows everything out of the park mm. you know and and when it happens it's super obvious right so we we have eucalyptus in the portfolio right that's a you know over 100 million revenue company in four years time so when that happens and you look at the same cohort of other nine companies it's very obvious that that's the breakout uh, company in that cohort mm. But you're not often looking at those companies all at the same time, right? Like they they raise their follow-on rounds at different times. It's not like all five of them come back to you at the same time and you can compare. So like how do you identify that's the one over the other five? I think if you kind of group them by vintages, right? Say 2023 investment, we'll do, you know, 10 of those. And then next year, probably nine of those will come back for more money. And not, not at the same time, but, you know, probably across 2024, right? Because they have one or one and a half year runway usually. And you can you can kind of go, right, which one is stronger as, as they start to, um, you know, have that conversation about the second uh, investment round. And then, you know, we also have nine years worth of historical data to refer to and some benchmark data on how fast can a company grow. And when you see an outlier, it's super obvious. Hopefully to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm like, you're saying it's super obvious, but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like for Rain, you're just so like, you're excellent. You're really good at making those decisions and making investment calls. And so I think like super obvious for you and discoverable to the rest of the population, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but I'll give you a concrete example, right? Say I've done 10 deals in 2019 and one of them is the crypto game called Steppen. Yeah. Right. And after they launched the game, they actually make 20 million USD profit in one quarter, right? Well, that is very obvious compared, you know, like <laughs> all the other companies, they struggle to get to 1 million recurring, right? So when that happens, you can, you can tell for sure that is a different company. Mm -hmm. So that's what I meant, like when the breakout happened. All right. So it's the really big outliers. Yeah. Yeah. It's super obvious, but you probably get like five bridging opportunity, like you said, right? Like, oh, they only need another couple hundred K to to get this deal across the line and then it will start to look like a strong company. Mm. So we do factor that in, you know, do we pro rata, do we bridge this company? But when we, I think where we actually make a lot of money is we pay attention to the breakout and we go heavy. Like I normally write 25K when I was into investing, but when I see a breakout, you know, I can do 250 into that same company. And it's quite counterintuitive to investor in other asset class, right? For example, if you buy like a listed stock on, on Comsec, right? Like you buy it for a dollar and then one year later it's $2. Most people will sell the holding, right? 
But in our case, we buy triple the amount at $2. And <laughs> that's because the context of the business have changed, right? They may be doing 1 million rev, and now they're doing 2 million rev with a pipeline of doing 4 million very soon. So then is it cheap or is it expensive? You know, it, it's all about context. And what I love about angel investing is you actually get, you know, information from the management team and the founding team on what they're working on, what, what are the progress they are making and where, what are the directions they're heading to, you know, versus there's, there's this like personal kind of information access and relationship that you could leverage versus like a listed company and you are going against, you know, a team of 60 analysts from Goldman Sachs, right? Like how can you find information asymmetry to, to make, you know, a, a, an informed investment decision? I think that's a super interesting point. And especially because investing in these early stage businesses, so everything from kind of pre-seed up, actually is a very different evaluation and assessment methodology than in many other asset classes. I have found having the huge privilege of kind of listening to you assess opportunities and kind of the way that you think about opportunities. I have been blown away by the breadth of analysis you're able to do kind of across different asset classes. <laughs> in the prep for this show, Cheryl was telling me you've been long on ginger. You own like a couple of thousand. You got three grand in ginger, like actually the root. Ginger, not the company, the vegetable. I would be super interested to hear from you how you develop heuristics across different asset classes and kind of work out what really matters and develop the way you think about investing across those different asset classes and kind of how that informs your skills of investing in venture. Yeah, good question. I think I think it's about, you know, what you mentioned earlier, the compounding effect, right? If you look at business model day in, day out for nine years, you can start to see pattern you know, that emerges. Uh, occasionally you see something super special and, and, you know, and then you, you get excited about it. But uh, I think... You know, ginger is actually, I'd rather not talk about this because I cannot get my hands on more ginger now Now that it's not like a secret. Like, <laughs> So what did what was it that was special? So it's a startup for invest in your farmer. I think Investable uh, invested in their last round. So we look at the company and I, I'm actually like a farmer at heart, right? I, I love gardening. I love trees. You know, I, I love agriculture. And, and when I saw that, I actually started to make some investment into some opportunities on, on the platform. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, it's actually less risky and, you know, sometimes they yield better than, um, than venture outcome. So, for example, ginger can yield um, 29%. What? <laughs> Annualized, right? And if you get a good year with low supply, you can yield double that. Wow. So why not, right? And, yeah. But, you know, the, the problem is with volume, right, like, it's about diversification, you know, you put a little bit, provided it's not hard to manage, right? You put a little bit of money into many different things, right? And and you have like guaranteed return, you have asymmetrical return, which is angel investing, and you have very niche ginger 29%, you know, <laughs> annualized return. And then you have a diversified portfolio, right? So I am sensitive to... um money-making opportunity. So when, when I see something, I'm always interested to put a little bit of money to test it out. If it works, then, you know, we'll, we'll increase the, the exposure. 
Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Incredible. So wait, how deep are you in on Ginger? Only three grand. He wants more. Yeah. I... Is that is that your current exposure? It's three grand and you can't get more? I think it's around three grand. But, you know, nowadays when the opportunities hit the platform, like when I see it, it's already sold out. Huh. So I hope not many people install the app after this episode. We'll try to keep a lid on it. Right. Or oh, maybe I should share my referral code. Yes. Yes. What's your referral <laughs> code? I'll make money from the referral <laughs> code. Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is when we asked, because I, I told you about this episode and, and how we were going to talk about the ginger and the fact that you've also invested in um, Propeller Arrow and, and a few other interesting companies like Vow and Morse Micro. And and I, we wanted to understand the mental models. And you said the common theme is anything that grows, which again, I feel like is a little bit like you're, well, when you see breakout companies, it's super obvious, but we'd really like to understand like, what are the signals that tell you whether something will grow or not? I think there are like critical points for each business model, right? When it's consumer facing, you want to understand we have a very small population in Australia. So, you know, how do you acquire a customer and is there a recurring component? That's what we are. You know, we normally look at with um with business to business solution. We look at who actually pays, you know, and then what's the return of investment, and how do you attribute success to your product, right? If you cannot answer this question clearly, it's gonna be quite difficult to sell to the customer, and then you know that will kind of like slow down the revenue growth. So you know, it it really depends on the business model and and what niche it's in and. Because of previous experience, it's kind of like, you know, you have a leaking bathroom and the plumber comes here and then they know where to look because they have went to like 1000 jobs before. I, I think there's a little bit of that in play here as well. Yeah. I think it's a bit like the role of instinct in early, especially early stage investing where it's so kind of information light, but I actually think this is the case kind of all the way up the uh, kind of asset class trajectory, but I'd be super interested in how you think about how much of it is instinct and how much of it is evaluation and how you think about instinct in decision-making for specifically your startup investing. I'll answer this question differently. I think we can start by profiling the investor profile in the ecosystem. Yeah. I think you can loosely categorize people as good pickers, you know, really good at evaluation and picking teams. And then you have good fixer, right? Fixer normally goes in and make things happen. And then you also have the fundraiser, you know, that can get revenue in or get um, investment capital into the business. Sometimes we'll make an investment by just looking at, do we have something special that can make things happen faster, right? For example, right, we'll look at a deal and we have an investor in a fund that actually owns 80% of the market that this company wants to sell to, mm. right? That's a strong power that we have. And if we have that power, that makes the investment quite low, low risk in a sense, right? And then because of the relationship with 
other bigger funds. So, you know, when I was investing 25K into early stage startups, like, and they need to raise half a million, for example, I often was the one that worked with the founder and talked to everyone to raise the remaining, remaining 475K. And because of that exercise, I pitched to, you know, rich people, active angel, active funds all the time. And then I hear about their objection or their excitement, right? If they're excited, they join the round. If they, are, if they have objection, they raise their concern. And if you do it for nine years, you kind of know what other people would like to see and want to see, you know, to get comfortable to join a round. I, I think that's quite important for the fundraiser, right? So when, when we see a deal, we can go, yeah, this round of money can get them somewhere. And if they can get there, I know I can raise the next round. That also makes the deal, you know, much lower risk in, in a sense. So it's it's about the combination of all those things, you know, for it's not just, oh, this PDF, right? Do we do is this a good deal or not? I think there are multi layer consideration when you come to a investment decision. That's wild that you went along to pitches at that early stage. And what percentage of your portfolio do you think you sat in on their their early pitches? I would say early days yeah, most of the companies, like they are, they are active and passive, right? Passive will be, yeah, Maxine is in this deal. She has done most of the work. You know, I trust Maxine. I'll put 25K in. Mm-hmm. And then there will be deals that I've originated myself. You know, I've done the coaching on the storytelling, you know, verify the numbers. And then I bring it to market and ask my friends to invest, right? And in those cases, if something goes wrong, my friends would, expect me to roll up my sleeves to fix the problem. Yeah. If you do that for a bit, you know, you kind of can understand what are the common problems that early stage uh, startups face, right? In the first year, especially. That's super interesting. You essentially are getting like 90 reps. Yeah, it's it's also interesting, right? Because founders, they raise a round of capital and then they don't raise for another one year or a year and a half, right? And then it doesn't make sense to them to, you know, map the landscape, talk to everyone, build a relationship, go through the pitch, you know, and DD and IC process every time. If we can do that constantly and become a plug and play kind of model. So you go, we invest, but we guide you towards that. And the next round can happen pretty, you know, low friction uh, in a way. Like it's a win-win, right? You don't spend six months trying to do what we do every month. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that is actually a very strong proposition, right? Especially in a very competitive round that we actually pitched the founder that, right? You raise the money once. I raise money almost every month. And I know the active angel at, for this round. I know the active funds for the next round. I know the active international funds for the round after that. And I'm constantly talking to them about different things, right? You don't have the bandwidth to do that. No. So why not let me specialize this and partner with you? So I, I think that's kind of a way that we position ourselves and, you know, we are everybody's best friend, right? We are angel investors, good friend in the same round. We are bigger funds, best friend because we surface, you know, the strong companies from, from the cohort of 10 to them next year, right? So, you know, again, back to the point on what do you bring to the table? I, th- I think we do that one job particularly well and, and consistently over, over time. That's super interesting. Yeah, it compounds for me like so many of the threads we've been talking about here, which is the like, 
know where you add value, mm. lean into that and do that really, really well and do it consistently over time and compound on that over and over again and you just continue to carve out a really defensible position as investors and add a lot of value to the founders because you're exactly right. Like the number of investors I've heard which kind of use the trope of, oh, we are repeat players, you're you know, only doing it once every year and a half. Like we can be really high value at your funding round. And then when the rubber hits the road, they make like three intros and they're like, best of luck. <laughs> you know, it's like not the same. Whereas, you know, what I'm hearing from you here is actually that you're doing probably between like 10 and 40 reps in any 12 month period of getting in and like actually helping and getting that information along the journey. Super cool. I'm not saying that we have a 100% hit rate, right? Sometimes there are deals <laughs> that we just cannot make happen. Sure. But we do try to set ex- expectation up front and, and we, we communicate with the founders that, you know, we invest a lot of small check into many companies, but you need to hit the performance hurdle. So then we can help you raise the next round. Otherwise, there's no ingredient that we can put into the story, even though we have, you know, a loudspeaker that can amplify the story it's just not a good story right so i think setting expectation up front and and let founder know exactly what they need to deliver is quite important especially with our model right we do a lot of small check but you know maybe half medium check and then you know and then maybe half again for the big checks so not everyone will get the same amount of love unless you are a breakup yeah what I think is also really interesting is that that part is de-risking. Like it's not just adding value to the founders and getting you the best deal flow. You actually talk about it de-risking your investment. Like if you already have an investment where their customers could potentially be some of the other like new companies investors, and that helps de-risk or uh, customers, then help that helps de-risk it for you. That's something that like I don't know if I've ever really thought about that, Maxine, in terms of like using my current portfolio to think about how that de-risks a new potential investment, have you? I definitely thought about it. My portfolio is, isn't as extensive as, as you two. I mean, <laughs> Rain, I think you're currently like... Over 100. Yeah. yeah. But I do, I mean, I, I am thinking about it for co-ventures, you know, kind of within the fund. And I think the kind of standout folks that do this really well that I think of are um, the YC cohort. Mm. They actually will like actively be investing in companies where the customer or the ICP of the investment that they're making is other startups and they kind of amplify it through Bookface and those kinds of things. So it can kind of de-risk that first, you know, 500 to $2 million in revenue. I also, there's a bunch of funds that do this that are like specialist funds in the US that kind of seek to de-risk that top line revenue or de-risk some key part of the business. And I think it's really clever and like it's excellent for founders because it helps them kind of not have to recreate the wheel on an, on an area. Um, and it's excellent for LPs because you are pay- you are getting a return that is compensating you for risk, but the risk you're actually taking is is less as a result of participation in that kind of investor. So I think it's super clever. Out of interest, how did you develop it? Like, how did you work out that this was something of value and that it would de-risk the investment? Did you kind of develop the strategy and then implement it, or was it a bit more of a kind of bottoms-up iteration? Yeah, I think it's quite organic like one step at a time and then you discover oh this is actually working right you try everything once or twice if it works then you double down on that and then eventually you figure out a model that works well and it's quite hard for other people to replicate it's quite similar to the journey of a lot of the um, startups as well 
I think portfolio synergy is definitely a thing. Like, I think too many investors, they evaluate opportunities on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. So sometimes we look at an opportunity, we go, okay, this may not return venture scale, but this is a critical piece to a lot of our other companies, right? And if combined, you know, the other companies can make, you know, 20 million revenue because of this. It doesn't matter if we lose 25K on that investment, for, for example, so that, you know, the, the company can make something valuable, you know, and, and boost the whole portfolio. And, and I think a lot of people don't, don't make investment decision that way. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that um, before in the ecosystem. Have you? Sure. I mean, I'm I'm listening to Rain, and I'm wondering if Aussie Angels was that investment. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are ecosystem play for sure, right? And and what gives people power? Like, we're an ecosystem player. <laughs> yeah, like it's. I think it's a critical thing because you know it actually creates opportunities for more people to have an opportunity to have a go, right? Like, otherwise, you know, there are lots of people that want to get involved with no means to. And I think to look at the volume, you know, you need that model to make volume happen, right? And and do we want that to happen? Yes. If it happens, is it beneficial to us? Yes. Yeah. Is there a potential that we make money? Yes. And and that's an easy investment decision. And can we can we concentrate too much? Probably not yet until we start to see, you know, where where the growth curve starts to uh, become more obvious. That's okay. We're like the ginger. You can't get any more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how do you think about competition across your portfolio with that methodology, right? Like you're so prolific at this point, like between funds and direct investments and plus your work at, at Archangels, how do you navigate competition across your portfolio? Do you care about it? Competition and conflict. So... I am not actively making personal investment anymore, except for ginger. <laughs> not potatoes though, right, Rain? Just ginger? If potato yield more than 29%, I'll definitely have a look, right? <laughs> the process now is every deal goes through the fund. Yeah. And if the fund pass and I really absolutely want to do it, then I can, I can do it, you know, through my personal account. But it creates conflict, right? Like, if I lose money, it's fine. But if I make a lot of money and my investor in the fund, they don't get the upside of that. It's really hard to explain to them, right? So so I'm doing less and less um, direct investment nowadays. But in terms of competition, we want to align for a good founder experience. So when we look at or chat to founders that are working on something similar to one of our companies, we normally disclose that upfront. And so that, you know, there's no bad feelings. Like I'm trying to, uh, you know, get proprietary information to feed it to my investee companies. And I encourage them to share as much as they want to, knowing that, you know, we have exposure in a potential co competitor. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially in the ecosystem, the number of times you hear from founders, right, that, they're either nervous of sharing information because they're scared of people stealing their idea, which I have a bunch of opinions on, or that, you know, they've had an experience where they felt like they shared some, something with someone and they, you know, that information then leaked out. It's super important to be careful of the information we receive as investors for exactly that reason. It's Information is such a weird substance in that respect, you know, like it's impossible to know at the outset that 
it will be valuable to someone else necessarily. Yeah, it's what you do with the information. And if anyone gets hurt, you know, I think that's usually um, not good. And, and you want to avoid those kind of conflict as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. As you're thinking about where you're exploring next or where you want to take your kind of investing journey next, what do you get particularly excited about at the moment, both asset classes and stages and particular trends? We'd just love to hear what you're kind of roving on next. I think the natural pathway for an investor is to do a small core fund and then do a medium-sized core fund plus a big follow-on fund. I'm not sure I'm built to running a follow-on fund because I'm, I'm not a late-stage uh, person. Uh, my business partner, Ben Armstrong, is. So I think it's quite complimentary that he's looking after a lot of the bigger, later-stage follow-on decision, even for this current fund. I, I think I'm well built to do like the really early stage gut feeling zero to one what if this work kind of investment decision yeah i think one step at a time and see how, how it goes from here I, we need to make a good portfolio to bring it to market and, and raise more money down the track right so yeah if, if that be, become a reality then then we'll design the the marketing campaign around that you know and then you may start to see my <laughs> brainwashing activity on linkedin again <laughs> Yeah, and then I will take that marketing message and swallow it hook, line, and sinker by the sounds of it. <laughs> so as an LP in the Archangel Fund, uh, I can say that like Rain's YOLO uh, portion of the portfolio uh, probably was one of the things that like hooked a number of people. Like they were like, hey, I want to get in. They'd come up to me and be like, hey, how do I get on Rain's YOLO portfolio? And I'm like, that's the Archangel Fund. And they're like, yeah, but like Rain's YOLO portfolio. I'm like... Yes, yes, you can get in through us. We're running a syndicate on it. Don't worry. But like that was what they were interested in. It wasn't like they had no desire to like be part of, well, they understood like Archangel, but like that was the piece that was getting them excited. And so Rain, when you talk about like, well, I can't really write stuff personally anymore because LPs, and again, I'm one of them, want to be in that yellow stuff that like it's gut feel for you. You've, you know, you're you're kind of the zero to one like instinct write small checks and double down person. And I think you've done such a great job of of doing that so far. And, and LPs are not going to be disappointed. At least I hope we're not, because I'm one of them. Right, right. I When I kind of zoom out here for a moment and look at the kind of arc of your investing journey from the kind of first listed stock all the way to now, what strikes me is the kind of entrepreneurial way that you've actually approached your investing journey. Yeah. It's very kind of like bottoms up iterative you've taken some big swings you've done things differently you know when everyone said see you just went zag and have shown that it really works one of the questions that we ask all of the folks that join us here on first check is what was the biggest cojones moment for you what was a moment that you feel like you did something really brave and you're super proud of it as in the investment what along the investment journey yeah, along the investment journey or on your kind of uh, the way that you think about investing, if that's what jumps to mind, or you can go off piste if you like, and if there's other categories. Anything in life, Rain. Yeah, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I think I think very recently, I personally breached like a relatively bridge round because no one, like most people don't don't believe in the potential that the bridge may work. Um, that was quite uncomfortably big kind of bridge as a single person, but, uh, so far it's looking good. Uh, but it was quite stressful for me when, when I, when I, when I did that. 
Dang, you personally bridged an entire investment round. Wow. Yeah, because one thing that I love to do is to tell people, I told you so, right? 10 <laughs> years down. <laughs> How many times have you gotten to say that, Rain? The funny thing is, I, I, I don't think many people actually are aware that I tried to raise a fund back in 2018. Huh. I couldn't get a fund up. Yeah, and you couldn't get more than 10 mil, right? I got to like 8 million and not a single cent more after that, right? So yeah. in hindsight, that was probably a good thing because, you know, I failed to realize how much of a back office admin and operations uh, work are required to, to run the side that you don't see, you know, the not fun side. The side that I see a lot. Yeah, I, I'm actually glad that, you know, we have a, a team to, to run that part, you know, very professionally. But then some of those investors that say no to me, they join the 22, can you 22 fund, right? <laughs> and one of them actually <laughs> screenshotted my pitch deck from 2018, right? <laughs> there was one slide that I list out all my investment and he actually highlighted all the big outcomes, you know, from that slide. But back then it was not obvious, but it's obvious now. And I say, I told you so. I told you so. <laughs> yeah. That must have felt so good. So good. I love it. Well, Rain, thank you so much for joining us. That was just the best. True to form, I feel like every time I have a conversation with you, I learn something new and you know, performed right against that today. You did not disappoint. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great to hang out with you guys. And here's to all the future I told you so as you get to say, Rain. Rain.